All right, we are in Acts chapter 6. <laughs> I am noticing that my notes got shuffled, so this is going to be awesome. <laughs> So, as I said in verse 8, no, 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 that's not right. Um, okay. This is so good. We'll see. We're off to, we're off to a great start. So, in chapter, in chapter 6, we have... Um, on the heels of some pretty exciting things are happening. Right? These first few chapters of Acts are pretty extraordinary. As we have Jesus unleashing the power of the Holy Spirit on his church and the church beginning to expand, the apostles learning what it means to be bold in the right ways, in the ways that Jesus has called them to be bold. We see people being healed. We see people suffering the righteous justice of God in some kind of frightening ways. And then we see the mercy of God put on glorious and incredible display. This morning, uh, we're going to read through these first few verses of chapter 6, and then we'll come back and we will unpack them together in whatever order is yet to be seen. (laughs) I'm going to actually start one verse, rewind one verse to 42 and 5 to kind of set set the scene here. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they, the apostles, um, did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus or that Jesus is Messiah. That's what that means, that Jesus is the Messiah. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte from Antioch, and they set before the apostles, they set, and these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would fulfill your promise this morning that your word will not return void. That as it goes out, it will accomplish exactly what you intend for it to accomplish. That you will remind us, Father, that it is your word that changes. Certainly not mine. 
It is your word that transforms us from the inside out, that reminds us of who you are and what you have done and, and declares to us who we get to be because of you and what your church is capable of as your kingdom people. I'd stir in us a trust in you through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, in whose name we gather and in whose name we trust alone. Amen. So, every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease from teaching that the Christ is Jesus. So the apostles are in the temple, in the public square. Okay, this isn't like in the church service necessarily. When they're talking about being in the temple, they mean they're out in the community. They are, they are where the community life is happening, where public dialogue is taking place. They are in the public square and in private relationships, house to house. Okay, so they are, they are engaging in close personal relationships. So there is public declaration and there's declaration around the dinner table. About what? That Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is the Savior King that they have been waiting for for generations. For hundreds of years. This is the mission that they are on. This is what the the new rhythm that they have created, that their lives are really that God gave them as a gift and that they are stewarding. This new rhythm of life that they are walking in all day, every day. And then in chapter 6, we see things begin to happen. It says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint or grumbling by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, if you don't know what the daily distribution is, that's what they talked about in chapter 5. In chapter 5, they talked about how everyone had everything in common, that there was no one among them that had need Because everyone was bringing to them their excess, was selling what they had so that they could distribute that to the people who did not have so that everyone had what they needed. And so in this distribution of what was was, uh, uh, amongst the church, uh, the Hellenists complained that, that their needy are being neglected. So you may be wondering, what on earth is a Hellenist? Fair question. We don't bump into those very often anymore. Hellenist is a Greek-speaking Jew. So typically, these are Jews who lived in other areas of the very broad Roman Empire. It covers a lot of ground. And the common language was Koine or common Greek. And so these these are Jews largely from the outlying areas. The Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jews are the ones who are responsible for the Greek translation of the Old Testament, sometimes called the, uh, or often referred to as the Septuagint. That is the, the copy of the, new, of the Old Testament, rather, that would have been in common distribution at the time. It's what most of the people would have been reading. It's what the writer, the authors of the New Testament we're reading, which is why sometimes when you're reading the New Testament and, and, and Matthew says, well, as it says in Isaiah, something, 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 and you go, oh, 
that's cool. I want to go see in Isaiah where it says that. And you flip back to Isaiah and you go, that doesn't sound exactly like what Matthew just said. It's not because Matthew misquoted. It's because Matthew was quoting from the Greek New Testament, Old Testament. Holy smokes, that's three times. I, I, I caught it the first two. That one slipped out. The Greek Old Testament. And so the wording is a little bit different because he is quoting from a translation. Paul often does the same. Most of the New Testament writers, that's, that's the one that they are reading. It had been in use for over 200 years by the time Jesus is born and hits the scene. So it's the one that they're quoting from. The reality is that it's because most people didn't speak Hebrew anymore. And so they needed the Bible in the language that they understood. So the centers of Hellenistic Judaism were the cities of Alexandria in Egypt and Antioch, which was then in Syria and now in Turkey. And for those of you who were at our church history class this last Wednesday, you are currently experiencing that delicious feeling of familiarity. And you're thinking to yourself, I, I know those two cities. Right? I've heard of both of those. And you too can share in that delight of fruitful familiarity by joining us on Wednesday nights right here at 6.30. I think they call that product placement. And when I work up a serious thirst from studying the Bible, I crack open an ice-cold Dr. Pepper. That's... Stupid and too far. I don't know why I said that. Sorry. <laughs> the notes threw me off, all right? I'm not, I'm not focused. <laughs> so, that was so dumb. <laughs> I'm sorry. We haven't gotten to the important part yet. We're still in intro, so I don't feel, I don't feel guilty yet. Um, so the reason, the reason Alexandria and Antioch matter, we'll actually get to them later on in Acts because they actually... Uh, become the two most important cities in the first couple hundred years of Christianity. So it's a big deal that that's kind of the centers of Hellenistic Judaism, and then they become the centers of Christianity in the Middle East. Well, Hellenistic Jews were, uh, were culturally different from Jews in Jerusalem and Judea, and, um, and, they, and they spoke Greek rather than Aramaic, which is what the common language in Jerusalem and Judea would have been. So it would have been really easy, even unintentionally, for them to just kind of get left out of stuff because they were both in terms of language and in culture, they would have just sort of been on the fringes. So there isn't really an indication that there was like an intentional attempt to alienate them. Likely they just were getting missed because they weren't kind of part of that inside group within Jerusalem. And the apostles become aware of this situation, become aware of the concerns. They, they humbly listen to the grumbling, the complaining, and they receive that and, and evidently deem it completely legitimate because then they immediately seek to come up with a solution for the problem. So it says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer 
and to the ministry of the Word. So I think it's important for us to point out that there's nothing in here that, that implies that the apostles felt like this was an inferior duty. Like, we can't waste our times we can't waste our time with this. It just wasn't their priority. God had assigned to them a very specific and special task, and they said, we can't stop studying the Word and, and no longer pray to God because we are administrating these other things, no matter how important those things are. In fact, they believed it was so important that they wanted to make sure that the volunteers that they gathered for this had a positive public witness of being filled with the Spirit of God and with wisdom. They needed qualified people to be able to manage this essential responsibility. So in verse 5, it says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering. So all the disciples, the Jews of Jerusalem and the Hellenistic Jews, everyone who is all together, all hears this and says, that sounds like a great idea. We support that. We're all, they are moving together in, in, in unity in this. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. We'll hear much more about Stephen in the coming weeks. Philip, who we'll also hear more from. And Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. So they list out the seven that they put forward, that, that the whole of this community decides these are the ones that we want to bring forward for this responsibility. These they set before the apostles, and they, the apostles, prayed and laid hands on them. They commissioned them for this important role. One thing that we don't necessarily pick up on as we're reading through that list, or maybe we wouldn't ever because this isn't something that you're nerdy enough to, to consider, uh, but I am, so you're welcome. I can be your surrogate nerd and look up the things that you don't want to spend time looking up. Things like all seven of those names are Greek names. Now, if you look back over those, you go, yeah, those look super Greek. I don't see any Ishmaels in there, no Abrahams or Joshuas. These are all very Greek names. Now, based on your now extensive knowledge, who would you imagine would have Greek names? The Hellenistic Jews, correct. The Hellenists would be most likely to have Greek names, correct? Because they are from Greek-influenced culture. So what it seems like is that they assigned all Hellenists to this role. That doesn't say that explicitly. There's a little bit of conjecture in there. It's possible that they, that they weren't. With the, only one of them explicitly says, uh, that last one, Nicolaus, the, the, the proselyte of Antioch, like that one is specifically like, this guy's a Jewish convert from a Greek city. So that, that one's explicit. We know that one's certainly a Hellenistic because he's a convert to Judaism. But the context clues, I would say, lean pretty heavily toward the fact that these are all Hellenistic Jews. 
So when, when faced with the issue that certain poor in their community from a particular subculture within their community were not being cared for properly, the response of the leaders of the early church was to appoint only people from within that very community, the community that was being neglected to handle all of the distribution for everyone. Sometimes we read a passage of Scripture because we are looking for something specific. We are looking for an answer to a specific question or or we're looking for uh, uh, to to prove a certain point and we want to find the evidence to prove our point for, for whatever reason. And we might miss the things that Scripture is saying that we aren't looking for. And so this morning I want to look at three things. I want to highlight three things that if we approach this only looking for one specific thing we could miss that is being communicated in this passage. The first one I've already touched on a little bit, the humility and wisdom that is displayed right out of the gate from the apostles is extraordinary and noteworthy. These early disciples are not trying to maintain control or dominance. They were quick to give away responsibility and authority to those who demonstrated lives that were committed to the Jesus way. They're not flippant. They're not reckless about it. They're not just saying, you want to do it? Great, take off with it. Because they know the people that they are sending out are representing Christ. So they take seriously who is in that role, but they are quick. Once they have established this person is is truly committed to the way of Jesus. They are quick to hand over responsibility and even authority, just like Jesus taught them to. And they had the humility to receive correction. The apostles were not above correction. How easy would it be to feel superior and feel above correction when Jesus himself said, you're my guy? If there's anyone in human history who could feel a little bloated, and for the the three years that they were with Jesus himself, they actually were, then all of a sudden, filled with the Spirit, there's an extraordinary amount of humility displayed right out of the gate. Because it seems like they believed and obeyed what Jesus taught them and what he modeled That the way we lead in the church is not by demanding submission or by controlling others, but by humbly submitting to one another and serving one another for the sake of Christ. So we see humility and we see wisdom right out of the gate. Number two, a valued commitment to prayer and the word for the sake of the church. Often the activity of ministry can distract us from the point of ministry. The reason we gather to worship, the reason that we we pray and we study and we grow in these things is in order to grow in the grace and knowledge and likeness of Jesus Christ. Or the way Peter said it, that we will be living as partakers of the divine nature 
which is like a whole series in and of itself to try to unpack that. But partakers, living as partakers of the divine nature and welcoming others into his precious and very great promises. Like that's what we're about here. And the apostles knew that in order to function in that way, the church needed those who were committed to the word and those who were committed to the work. And people who could help administrate the living out of those realities in the community around them. Right? Word people must also work. Okay, so we got like people who are committed to the word and to prayer also serve. And, and people who are committed to serving also must continue to marinate in the word and to pray. But what we see modeled here is what Paul later goes on to talk about the body of Christ and leaning into, embracing, and delighting in our differences, our wiring, our gifting, and that coming together to function as a body, that we're not all one part with one function, we're many parts with many functions. When we work together, the body is healthy. So there are those who lean more heavily into study and deep communion with God in order to feed and encourage and equip the church so that it will be healthy as it works to accomplish the mission of never ceasing to teach and preach that Jesus is the Savior King and, and serving those who struggle to care for themselves. Which are defined, according to Scripture, as the poor, the orphan, the widow, those in need of justice, and the foreigner. I love that the disciples' response is not, serving tables is not worth the church's time. We have more teaching to do. If that was the case, they would have just said, this is not our concern. But what they demonstrate is this beautiful tension of an unwillingness to compromise the importance of prayer and the word while also being unwilling to compromise meeting the needs of the poor. This isn't an either-or. Oftentimes churches fall to one side or the other. Right? One of them is the one that matters, and the other one is optional. Good for some people, but not for us. What good is study of the word and even prayer if it doesn't result in people who live the Jesus way in the world around them? What good is living out Jesus' principles if it is disconnected from Jesus himself? One might go so far as to say, though it's not explicitly stated in, this, in the text, but I don't feel like it's that much of a reach, to say it seems like they believed that the two most important things were to both love the Lord their God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and also to love their neighbor as themselves. That's what they were taught, right? That's what was modeled for them, and so that's what they were living out. We need both. We need both, and we need both. Which brings us to our third point. 
the first organizational decision in the church is regarding care for the poor. Now that should not come as a huge surprise to anyone who spends a lot of time reading the Bible. Both the Old and New Testament is saturated with God's care for the poor and how essential it is for his people to care about the things that he cares about. What should come as a surprise is how often we still ask the question, what is the church's responsibility to the poor? That is a nonsense question in the church of Jesus Christ. In a Bible-believing church, that's a rhetorical question. We have total responsibility. Is there a tough one? Scripture is quite explicit. It's quite explicit. Paul, after traveling to Jerusalem to meet the apostles and to ask, basically to ask if they would affirm his ministry, basically legitimize him, to say like, hey, this is what Jesus told me, but I can't, I can't be an apostle of Jesus and, and be divisive from his apostles, like his, his church, his people also need to affirm that. And this is, so he goes to Jerusalem and he, and he meets with them. And in Galatians, when he's, uh, he's writing to the Galatians and he's, and he's telling them this story, he says, And when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised or to the Jewish population. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. He mentions that as the only stipulation that they put on him. I don't know if they asked him for a statement of faith. I don't know if they asked him what his church politics and governance policy was. They affirmed that Jesus had called him, saved him, anointed him, sent him, and they said, oh wait, one last thing. Remember the poor. That's essential. So essential that James, the brother of Jesus, writes, In chapter 2, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You notice that so also? That means like the other thing I just said, so, so James just said, telling someone, oh man, I wish that person in need would be able to get help, is dead. It's worthless. Feed them. Clothe them. Help them find a place to stay. That is what faith looks like. The majority of the Old Testament prophets rebuke Israel over and over and over again for their lack of care for and sometimes just straight exploitation of the poor and the foreigner. And they 
declare it as objective evidence that their hearts are far from God and that they need to repent. In Isaiah and Amos, he talks about, I don't want to hear your worship songs anymore. They make me sick. Because you refuse to provide justice for those who are suffering around you and you will not care for the needs of the poor. It's a big deal to God. Really big deal. One of the most surprising, at least to me, the most surprising and rather alarming passages in this regard, aside from being told, I'm sick of the sounds of your worship songs, which that one kind of caught me a little off guard. Give me pause. In Ezekiel, the the God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel is really leaning into Israel. He is heartbroken and he is angry. He begins to compare them to Samaria and to Sodom. He says, not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, but within a very little time, you were more corrupt than they in all your ways. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. That that got their attention and should get ours. I want you for just a second... So he says, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. I want you for just a second to imagine what was the sin that Sodom committed? What comes to your mind? Don't say it out loud, just think it. But what in your mind, when you think of the Old Testament city of Sodom, what was their sin? Here's what God says through the prophet Ezekiel. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty, which means arrogantly superior to those around them, and did an abomination before me. That is the reason that God declares he destroyed the city of Sodom. Because they had prideful and an arrogant sense of superiority toward other cities and countries and people And they had more food than they needed. They were comfortable. And they did not help the suffering around them. They did not help the poor. I don't know about you, but that was a surprise to me. It shouldn't have been because of what the rest of Scripture says. Jesus in a parable Tried to make it simple and to connect. He loved to tell these stories that would help connect these things. The way he said is, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite 
just your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return. You would be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus says, that's who I love. Invite them to my party. Invite them to my kingdom. Feed them generously, lavishly, and care for them. And the most recent, last example I'll give, the most recent from the last chapter of Acts. Jay taught it just a couple weeks ago. The story of Ananias and Sapphira bringing their money to the apostles. They are judged for lying about money. What was that money for? Providing for the poor. They were judged not for mishandling a tithe to the church or a sacrifice to the temple, but for lying about a benevolence gift. Because God declares, this is how serious this is to me. The church has taken that seriously for 2,000 years. For the most part, the church has been the primary influence in caring for those who cannot care for themselves for the last two millennia, in spite of what revisionist historians would like to try to retroject back onto the story of history. It has been the church that has led the way in caring for the people who cannot care for themselves. The ideals of dignity of all people as image bearers of God and and the sanctity of life and the mandate to care for those who are unable to care for themselves are Judeo-Christian principles. They are not universal principles. They were novel and new ideas and foreign ethics to nearly every culture that Christianity stepped into in those first hundreds of years. and remains as an echo, even in the most secularized cultures in the world right now. They don't want to admit that their ethics are borrowed and slightly distorted, but those ideas come from Jesus. Talking about a lot of these things in our cultural context currently has gotten rather muddied. Maybe some of you are even a little uncomfortable right now as I'm talking about this because it's gotten rather tainted. It's become politicized. It's become a political platform for some as much as a biblical mandate, for some even more so. And the reality is some groups within the church and our country have sold our birthright for a bowl of lentils and handed over our responsibility for caring for the least of these to nonprofits and secular institutions and to governments. In many respects, the world has taken responsibility for what is ours to steward because in many respects, we have handed it over to them. Not entirely, not speaking broadly of everyone, but It's important that we acknowledge that, at least in part. Many of those outside of the church borrow kingdom realities, right? Because they are beautiful and they are true, right? 
It's actually beautiful and true that every individual human deserves dignity and love because they were created in the image of God and they are loved by Him. Right? So, when we hear people saying that, we can acknowledge absolutely, absolutely that is true. But for many outside the church, they want to borrow those kingdom realities but seek to bring them about without the only one who makes them possible and the one who gives them meaning and the source from whom they come. They want the kingdom, what the kingdom produces, but they don't want to submit to the one who is the source and from whom all of that flows. They want the kingdom without the king. And as we have already asked, what good is living Jesus' principles if it is disconnected from Jesus himself? Ultimately, it's unsupportable. It's built on sand and is operating under just a, 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 a poor reproduction of borrowed principles. But those who belong to the kingdom of God know why we believe that every single human deserves to be treated with love and dignity. Because like us, they are fellow image bearers. We not only have the best reason for humble and self-sacrificial leadership and generously using all of the resources that we have been given by God to care for others, but we are empowered by the spirit of that living God in order to do so in ways that don't even make sense to the world around us. I love that we serve in a church where there are plenty of people who operate in this way. If you hear this and you go, I don't even know how to do this, come and tell us and we will get you connected up with somebody who is doing this right now. Who is caring for those, who is providing meals, who is providing housing, who is sharing their time with those who are unable to serve themselves or care for themselves the way they ought to be able to. I love that that is a part of our church community. And I love that there are churches across our country that do this in extraordinary ways. Years ago when I was a youth pastor, I, I, I brought a team of students. It went two weeks. The first week was junior high students and the second week was high school students. And, and we spent both weeks at, uh, partnering with this church in, in a place called Vallejo, California, which is just outside of San Francisco. And we were in a, a kind of shady part of the city, a church that had been there for a couple hundred years and, and had watched the city deteriorate around them, but stayed there and had a pretty uh, a significant presence and witness in there. And what that church does, because they read this passage and said, oh, we should do that. So every Sunday night, they have a free dinner. And every Monday through Thursday, they have a free lunch. Brings in about 200, 250 people every day. And every Saturday, and depending on who you are, if you ask me, it's Friday night. To some of you, you would call it Saturday morning. But Saturday at 2.30 a.m., they have a barbecue. Every Saturday. Because years previously, one of the pastors had, for whatever reason, been out late and was trying to find some place to eat and couldn't find anything that was open and heard from a friendly prostitute, oh, you won't find anything. 
This is, this is when we're all trying to get something to eat and nothing's ever open. So he gathered up some members of the church and a grill and the next Saturday at 2.30 in the morning fired up the grill. And a couple decades later, they are still doing that. And so we, the first week was extra hilarious. The first 20 minutes of it, I had like 15 junior hires all standing behind me in a little clump. Peering around me. And by an hour in, they were spread out all over the place, talking, laughing, enjoying, connecting with about 40 to 50 prostitutes and homeless men and women. We were, we were visitors and got the privilege of being a tourist with that for two weeks. But to this day, this church still does this every single Saturday. And so every single Saturday, hurting people continue to encounter Jesus through his people, loving him in this very practical way. First few hundred years of the church looked similar. They knew this well and they lived this well. So well, this is a quote that I've read, I think, a couple times over the last few years, but it's one of my favorites. A quote from Emperor Julian, known as Julian the Apostate, grandson of Constantine and maybe great-grandson, I don't remember exactly, but he's just a couple, a couple years, a couple generations past Constantine. He is super bummed that the last few generations have instituted this Christianity, which he referred to as atheism, because they had rejected the pantheon of Roman pagan gods. And so he is, part of his mission is to eliminate Christianity and cause a revival of paganism in the Roman Empire. And he is struggling. And in a frustrated letter he writes to one of his priests, he says, why do we not observe that it is their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and their pretended holiness of their lives that have done so much to increase atheism? For it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg and the impious Galileans support not only their own poor but ours as well that all men see that our people lack aid from us. I would love so much if that was the complaint about the church. Over 300 years after Jesus leaves this earth to be with the Father, what marks Christian society is their prioritization and effectiveness for the care for the poor within the church and in society at large. And I just ask, what if the Christian response to the very real problems that we see in government welfare and institutionalized support for the least of these and those in need, was to fix the problem by following the footsteps of the apostles in the first couple hundred years of the church by being so extravagantly generous that government officials would complain that they have no one to give their money to because those annoying Christians keep meeting everyone else's needs. Amen. We can do that, church. We are capable of that. 
We can, we can have society complain about us for the right reasons, for biblical reasons. They complained that they kept caring for the people that they felt didn't deserve to be cared for. They complained that these churches were filled with the poor and with slaves and with women and with blue-collar non-intellectuals. Which the apostle said, right, that's, that's who Jesus told us to invite to the party. And it was those people who at the time society looked, like, looked at and had no regard for, no value for, who transformed what at the time was the greatest empire in the world. By walking in Jesus' way. The first organizational decision in the church was regarding care for the poor, for loving others, at least as much as they love themselves. It was accomplished by apostles who were willing to humbly give away authority and responsibility to the very people who brought the concern to their attention. It was because of their devotion to prayer and the word and as a result of their apprenticeship to Jesus that they remembered what matters most to the heart of Jesus. And what was the result? Look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What happened is lives were transformed. Even the people that seemed least likely to be transformed by this radical truth and this radical way of life were transformed. And I would argue that a church that is following in the Jesus way and that desires to have this kind of kingdom impact and growth is a church that must humbly ask itself, how is it committed to the word? How is it committed to prayer? How is it committed to the care of those in our community that struggle to care for themselves? And to do so more and more and more, ever increasing in our commitment to love God with all that we have and to love others at least as much as we love ourselves. Father, we ask for help to do this for discernment to know how, for unity that we would move as one body, as one family in a direction in your ways, by your means, toward your ends. God, help us to grow in our likeness to you, our love for you, our worship of you, our dependence on you, and allow us the privilege and the joy of transforming this community of honoring your image bearers that are around us. Following in your example and the example of our brothers and sisters who learned from you. Jesus, we love you, we need you, and we need your help in this as we do in all things. In your name we pray, amen.